Welcome to all of you who are joining us online and also those of you who are gathered here at Central Campus. It's such an encouragement for us to be together like this. Um, God bless you all. As well as those of you who are meeting at one of our other campuses in Airdrie and Bridgeland, South Calgary, and um, at Bears Paw. I'm going to invite you to turn your Bibles to Romans chapter 9. Um, for the benefit of those who uh, are new to our church, I'm going to just, do a, just take a moment and give a, a quick uh, overview of the book of Romans. The overarching theme of Romans is how we can have a genuine friendship with God. And the Apostle Paul, uh, like a lawyer, kind of lays it out for us uh, uh, utilizing five major themes. He addresses the first theme in Romans 1 that goes all the way to Romans 3, verse 20, and it could be labeled sin because sin is what gets in the way of us having a relationship with God. The second theme is addressed in Romans chapter 3, 21, right through to chapter 5, and could be called salvation or how we can begin a relationship with God. And then we come to the third theme, which is addressed in Romans 6 to 8, which we just completed, and could be called sanctification, because it focuses on our position in Christ, our identity in Christ, and how we can grow in our relationship with Him. The fourth theme is taught in Romans 9 to 11, and could be called sovereignty, because it focuses on the sovereignty of God and the importance of knowing that He is God and we are not. And then finally, uh, the final theme is found in Romans 12 to 16 and could be called service or how we can serve God after we know Him. Now last week we finished Romans 8, which many believe is one of the greatest and most inspiring chapters in the Bible. And if you missed that message and need a little encouragement in your faith, be sure to go to our website online and take in last week's message. Now, if you're a long-term Calgarian, as I am, by now you know that when it comes to weather, the weather you start out with in the morning is often not the weather you end up with in the evening. You can start out with a warm, sunny day and then Sometimes in a, a matter of minutes, the sky gets overcast, the wind begins to howl, the temperature drops dramatically, and rain or perhaps even snow begins to fall. Well, I'm here to warn you that the switch from Romans 8 to Romans 9 feels like that. Here's the thing, Romans 9 to 11 are not only very difficult to understand, but even more difficult to teach. However, as you know, in this church we don't avoid or skip the tough passages of Scripture like this just to keep things positive, you know, light and make people feel good. Even though we're not against people feeling good and feeling positive, uh, we believe that God included all the Scriptures for a purpose 
and for our ultimate good. And so we're committed to teaching the whole counsel of God. We're committed to teaching the Word of God as accurately and as clearly as we can, even when it's tough. All right? <laughs> and so as we make our way through these challenging um, passages, I'm going to ask that you'll hang in there with me. It won't tune out. And that you will do all that you can to, to focus and to track with me as I humbly attempt to help us understand these passages on the sovereignty of God. And I also request that we begin another tradition. We have this tradition where at the end of the message, we ask God, what are you saying to me? And what are you going to do? What, what are you calling me to do about it? What I'm going to ask that you would do when you enter this place for this time of worship that you would go to God and you would just open your hands to him and just take a moment and whisper a prayer to him and say, Lord, I'm open to what you want to say to me today in this service and also through this message. Please speak to me. And I want us to do that because I am convinced to the core of my being that if and when we sincerely do that, God will speak to us. Amen? Amen. All right. With that in mind, would you stand a moment? Let's dedicate this time to the Lord in prayer. Our Heavenly Father, we open our hands to you right now. And Lord, we ask that you would remove distractions. Lord, you would help us to focus. That you would open our ears and our hearts to hear what you want to say to us through the teaching of your word. For we pray it all in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. Now in the first eight chapters, the Apostle Paul talks extensively, not only about the problem of sin and how that messes with our relationship with God, but he also talks about the amazing grace of God and God's passionate desire to see all people come back in right relationship with himself. Well, this message of grace was foreign to the culture of that day. It was especially foreign to the Jewish culture. And so here in chapters 9 uh, to 11, Paul takes time out to kind of circle back to his own people, the Jewish people, many of whom had rejected Christ and did not embrace the gift of grace that Jesus offers. And Paul was grieved by this. Look at verse 1. I speak the truth in Christ. I am not lying. My conscience con uh, confirms it through the Holy Spirit. I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the sake of my people, those of my own race, the people of Israel. Some of you have family and friends who are near and dear to you who for various reasons want nothing to do with the Jesus that you know and love. Or perhaps they're just ignoring him. They know about him. They've maybe even kind of moved in his direction for a while, but they're just ignoring him. They don't want him messing with their lives. Or perhaps they're just keeping him at a safe, comfortable distance. Just when he's convenient for them. You know, when they need him. 
they kind of lean into him. And it's breaking your heart because you are not only concerned about where they're going to spend eternity, but also because you know if they have a relationship with Jesus and if they follow him sincerely, their life will be filled with meaning and purpose and they will experience a joy and a peace and a satisfaction and fulfillment that passes all human understanding. And you desperately want that for them. Well, this is how Paul was feeling about his people, the Jews who were rejecting Christ. So much so that he says here that he'd be willing to give up his relationship with Christ if it meant by doing so that the people of Israel would actually come to know Christ. And so as we read and as we seek to understand this chapter, it's important that we remember Paul is actually addressing questions that undoubtedly many Jewish people are asking, but other people as well. And they're asking questions about the sovereignty of God and man's responsibility and man's free will. They're asking questions about God's grace. They're asking questions about the difference between religion and a relationship with God. Now, before we jump into this chapter, I want to remind us of a story that Jesus told in Matthew 20 because I think you'll understand uh, what Paul is teaching in, in here in Romans 9 so much better um, through that story. It's a story about a man who owned a large vineyard. The landowner had a vineyard that, that was full of grapes to be harvested and so early one morning he went to the town market where you could not only purchase an assortment of food products but you could also hire uh, laborers to work in your fields. When the landowner arrived, it was around 5.30 in the morning, and he hired all the workers who were there looking for work. And he asked them how much they would like to receive for a full day's work, which, by the way, was for 12 hours. And they all agreed to, the, um, to be paid the going rate of that day, which was a denarius. The landowner said, you give me a full day's work and I will give you a full day's pay. And so they left for the field and began working at 6 uh, in the morning. A few hours later at 9 a.m., he went back to the marketplace and he found some more workers. And he hired them and he assured them that he would pay them whatever is right. And this scene was repeated again at noon and at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And at 5 o'clock, an hour or so before quitting time, he found a few more workers at the marketplace and he hired them as well. All of them were happy for the opportunity to work and to receive even just a little pay for their efforts to help pay for food and other essentials. Now back then, they didn't have banks. And so Levitical law stated you had to give a worker his pay at the end of every work day. And so that is what the owner did. Only he did it in a highly unusual way. Instead of paying those who had worked the longest, he instructed his foreman to begin paying those who had started work an hour before quitting time. And to everyone's shock, he paid them a full day's pay, a denarius. 
Those who worked three hours, six hours, nine hours, he also paid them a full day's wage. And then he came to those who had worked the full shift of 12 hours, and they too received a full day's pay as well, the agreed upon denarius. And the passage goes on to say that when they received it, they began to grumble against the landowner. And one of them essentially said, Sir, I'm sorry, but we all worked all day, and you only give us a denarius? Those guys over there, I mean, they arrive an hour before quitting time, they barely break a sweat, and you give them the same amount as us. I mean, it's not only illogical, but it's unfair. And I can picture the landowner using a bit of the Inspector Columba approach and approaching these workers and saying, when I met you this morning at 5.30 at the employment office, did we not agree you would work a full 12 hours at the going rate of a denarius? Well, yeah, they mumbled. Did I mistreat you in any way? Well, no. So let me get this straight. You wanted to work for a full day's wage, and you did that. And in exchange, you wanted to get paid the agreed-upon denarius. And I did that. Is that correct? Well, yeah, but... And the landowner went on to say, I don't think that you're upset about what we agreed to. Because you got exactly what you deserved. A denarius for a full day's work. I think you're upset because these other workers over here got more than they deserved. And you know what? You're right. I did. I admit it. I chose to be exceptionally gracious to them. But remember this. It's my vineyard, it's my business, and it's my payroll. And if I want to be overly generous to some people, that is my prerogative. I did you no injustice. I simply extended grace to them. Now, folks, if you understand the point that Jesus was making in this parable, you're going to understand the main point that Paul's making here in Romans 9. You see, in our society, life is predicated on performance, not grace. From the time children are young, they are taught, if you want something, you are going to have to earn it. We remind them, there is no such thing as a free lunch, that you get what you pay for, and if it sounds too good to be true, it probably is. And so we just naturally keep score. We keep tabs on things. Someone does something for us, we expect to pay them back in some way. If we get a reward of some kind, it's probably because we've worked hard to achieve it. Now, let me be clear, when it comes to being responsible individuals and good citizens, there's nothing wrong with this. 
It's just having an old-fashioned work ethic, which is commendable. But here's the thing. The outcome of this way of thinking is we have this deep sense of fairness built into the fabric of our lives. We expect our parents and we expect our employers to treat us fairly. And when they don't, we get some upset. That's why most people today can accept a religion with an eye for an eye type of God. A God who sort of keeps tabs, who rewards the good and punishes the bad. We can understand that. That makes sense. The problem is, even though that is what most religion, that's how most religions function, it's not how biblical Christianity functions. God won't be put into a neatly wrapped box of predictability because time and time again we're reminded in the scriptures that even though God doesn't treat anyone unjustly like the owner of the vineyard in the parable sometimes God chooses to bless or act outrageously gracious to individuals who least deserve it you see Christianity is based on grace. And grace is unfair. Justice is getting what you deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. And that sense of fairness that's in all of us just really reacts to grace. Well, here in chapter 9, Paul explains that the reason we tend to react negatively to God's grace is because we don't fully understand God's sovereignty. And so in this chapter, Paul spells out at least five truths about God's sovereignty. And we're going to only look at the first one in this message, and you need to be thankful for that, or we'd be here till about 1.30. All right? So I'm going to leave you hanging till next time for the other four. We're just going to look at the first one. And here it is. God's sovereignty means that God has the right to choose who he will work through to accomplish his purposes. Now, before I unpack this, I just want to remind you that as we study the passage, it's important that in the back of your mind, you keep Paul's overall theme of Romans in mind. And I just touched on that a moment ago. Paul's driving theme throughout Romans is God's consuming passion to see all people come in right relationship with himself. Keep that in mind. Because you see, some people use this chapter to make a case that God predestines or God determines in advance who's going to heaven and who will go to hell. Well, even though one might conclude that to be the case on the basis of just a few verses in chapter 9, I do not believe that that is what's being taught in this chapter. Let me remind you, of a couple of verses we examined last time. 
Turn back to Romans 8, verse 29, that talks about this word predestination. This is what it says. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed in the image of his Son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. Notice it does not say that he predestined us or determined in advance who would go to heaven and who would go to hell. No, it says he predestined us for a purpose. And what is that purpose? That purpose is to be conformed in the image of his son or to be like Jesus. Now turn over to Ephesians chapter 1, which is another chapter that people struggle understanding when it comes to God's sovereignty and predestination and so forth. Look at verse 4 of Ephesians 1. It reads like this. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. Notice again, it says he chose us for a purpose. And what is that purpose? To be holy and blameless in his sight, which is the same purpose that I just mentioned a moment ago from uh, Romans 8.29, which says he chose us to be like Christ. And why or for what purpose did God choose us to be like Christ? Why, for what purpose did God choose us to be holy and blameless in his sight? So that others would be drawn to the Jesus living in us and through us. You see how this ties into the overall theme of Romans? Now look at Ephesians 1.5. It says this, In love he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will. In other words, God determined beforehand the way we would become his spiritual sons and daughters. That it would be through Christ who through his death and resurrection made a way for us to be saved by grace through faith. God predestined or determined the way of salvation in advance. And Paul is saying here to his people, the Jews, and to us, that God is God and we're not. And as God, he has the right to do what he wants to do. He's not answerable to anyone. I mean, if he was answerable to someone, he wouldn't be God. And if God says the only way that you can be saved is by embracing, by faith, the grace that Jesus provides and not through your works, your good works, and not through your religious rituals, and not through your religious practices, then that is the way it is. Now you can say, you know, as I'm sure I could just hear the Jews saying, well, you know, that's just not fair. You can say, well, that's just too easy. I can't accept that. That's too easy. But God says, this is the way I have chosen for people to come in right relationship with myself. Again, friends, God is sovereign. 
And he has a plan and a purpose for all that he does. And we can either reject him or we can humble ourselves and accept the gracious gift of grace that he offers us. Now, to be clear, because God is sovereign, I do believe that he has the right to do what he wants to do. That is one of the main themes of Romans 9. I believe that as our God and creator, he has the right to choose or to elect people to heaven. He has that right. In the same way that a rich person, for example, can choose to pay the college tuition of 500 students if they so wish. But if you examine all the New Testament scriptures and what they teach about the sovereignty of God and and man's responsibility, the idea that God chose in advance who would go to heaven and who would go to hell just doesn't hold up. In fact, as I pointed out last time, 2 Peter 3.9 says this, The Lord is not slow in keeping his promise, as some understand slowness. Instead, he is patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone, that's pretty all-inclusive when you say, everyone to come to repentance. Nothing could be more clear. God has a right to choose some to be saved and others not to be saved, but this verse tells us that his heart's desire is that no one would perish and that everyone would be saved. He wants to have a personal friendship with everyone. So here is how the scriptures explain how God seeks to do that. Again, going back to Romans 8.30, Paul says that God calls us to himself. In other words, God reveals himself. He pours out his grace on every person. And he tries to get our attention through his creation. He tries to get our attention through the scriptures. He tries to get our attention through the witness and example of other Christians. Through circumstances. He tries to get our attention through miracles and spiritual encounters with him. All for the purpose of getting us to open our minds and our hearts to his reality, to his love and his grace and his plan for our lives. When we respond to his call or to his grace, Paul goes on to say in verse 30 that God justifies us. Meaning we're forgiven, we're cleansed, We are made righteous by God in the eternal realm and we become his forever friend. God does it all. He's done it all through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, but we need to receive his gift of grace by faith. God is sovereign, yes, but we are responsible to respond. If we respond in faith, God gets all the glory because he did everything to make a way for our redemption. All we can do is receive it by faith. On the other hand, if we don't respond to God's grace while we're alive, 
then when we die, we will forever be separated from God. And we will have no one to blame but ourselves. Now, there are many scriptures that specifically teach that we need to respond to God's call. Look at Romans chapter 10, verse 9. If, that's a conditional statement, if you declare with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. In other words, he's the Lord of your life. And believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. John 1.12 says, Yet to all, again a conditional statement, Yet to all who received him, to those who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. Acts 16.31 says, Believe in the Lord, in the Lord Jesus, and you will be saved. I mean, think of it this way. If God already decided in advance who was going to heaven, then why did Jesus commission his disciples and us, his present-day followers, to go and make disciples? Why is there such a sense of urgency in the Scriptures to reach out to others and introduce them to Jesus? No question it is because God wants everyone to be saved. That's his desire. D.L. Moody put it this way. He said, the elect or the chosen of God are the whosoever wills. And the non-elect of God are the whosoever wants. I share all that background so we understand that when we read here in this chapter that God chooses or elects people or people groups, he's not deciding who goes to heaven or hell. No, he's actually deciding who he will use to help others go to heaven. Let's look at the people of Israel for a moment again. Back in Genesis chapter 12, verse 1, God chose the Jewish people for a purpose. This is what we read there. Then the Lord said to Abraham, Leave your country, your people, and your father's household, and go to the land that I will show you. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you. Now, having chosen them, God blessed them in so many ways, and we read about it from verse 4 and 5. He guided them through the wilderness with a bright cloud of glory. He made covenants with them. He gave them the law, the Ten Commandments, rules for daily living. He gave them a temple and guidelines for worship. He gave them incredible promises. He gave them the patriarchs, great leaders of the nation like Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Moses, and David. And greatest of all, he gave them the privilege of being the race that the Messiah, Jesus, would come from. I remind you that Jesus was Jewish. As God's chosen people, they were specially blessed. Now the question is, why did God choose or elect 
the Jewish people. Why didn't he pick another people group? Well, we know from what we read here in Romans 9 that he didn't choose them because they were morally better or because they worked harder or were more deserving than any other people. He could have chosen any people group. He simply, in his sovereignty, chose them. But here's my point. Notice he didn't choose them to save them. In fact, look at verse 6. Romans 9, 6. If it is not as though, it is not as though God's word had failed. And why do you say that? Well, it's because most of the Jews were not following Jesus. Most of the Jews were not in a relationship with God. So did God fail his covenant and his promise? That's what he's addressing here. But he goes on to say, For not all who are descended from Israel are Israel, nor because they are his descendants are they all Abraham's children. You see, Paul makes a distinction here that would have been rather shocking to hear um, uh, for some Jews. He says, Just because you're born an Israelite doesn't mean that you're part of true Israel. In other words, or those whose hearts are right with God. And by the way, he goes on to say, there are those who are not ethnically Jewish who are right with God. He's saying, God never promised that everyone who is Jewish will be saved just because they are his chosen people. Only those who put their trust in God and his promise will be saved. And these people, this remnant of true believers, will also be the evidence that God keeps his word and his promises, as Paul declares in verse 6. Now, I point this out because it shows that God wasn't giving the Jews a free pass to heaven just because they were God's chosen people. No, he chose Israel for a purpose, even as he chooses us for a purpose. And what was that purpose? Well, Genesis 12, verse 4 tells us. It says, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. God said, I'm choosing you, electing you for a purpose. So that through your life and relationship with me as a people and as a nation, my reality will be revealed to people of other nations who don't know the true God and who one day will say about the people of Israel, your God is God. And so God chooses Israel to be his missionaries, his representatives in the world. The problem is, they never really followed through on this. Instead, they kind of sat around and said, man, are we blessed. I mean, aren't we special to be God's chosen people? I mean, this is so good. And you see, they just assumed that because they were the chosen people, they had a ticket to heaven. And they never felt any compulsion at all to basically communicate the good news of the God they served to others. And so, in the fullness of time, 
God put the Jews on hold. He hit the pause button. And he commissioned Jesus. He sent Jesus. And he commissioned Jesus and his bride, the church, to be his representatives in the world. And so today, when we embrace Christ as our Lord and Savior, we now become his representatives in the world. We become his witnesses because he has chosen us, his church, to go and make disciples of all nations. Now, even though God, through the Spirit, will give all of us, every one of us that are open to him, he will give all of us assignments to carry out each and every day if we're listening to him. There are times that God will very specially call and choose a person to serve him as his representative. He did that with the Apostle Paul. Remember, he reached down into history and said, Paul, why are you persecuting me? Kind of threw him off his high horse. Woke him up to his reality. He did that with Moses here in verse 14. Moses was a criminal. He was a murderer. He was a fugitive from justice. For 40 years, he lived in a desert as a nobody. But God picked him up, made him his messenger, and gave him a name that is still remembered today. He gave him authority over the greatest king that this world had ever known at that time and used him in a remarkable way. Why? Simply because God chose to do so. In verse 8 and 9, God said, I'm going to carry out my kingdom purposes through Isaac rather than Ishmael, even though Ishmael is the older. In verse 10, God chose to work out his purposes through Jacob rather than Esau, even though Esau was the firstborn. Look at verse 10. Not only that, but Rebekah's children were conceived at the same time by our father Isaac. Yet before the twins were born or had done anything good or bad in order that God's purpose in election might stand, not by works, but by him who calls, she was told, the older will serve the younger, just as it is written, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Now I realize at first glance, parts of that verse are really troubling, especially the last verse I read, verse 13. Jacob I loved, Esau I hated. Now what does that mean? I mean, that's a really good question. Thanks for coming. We'll see you next week. (laughs) Now seriously, keep in mind that the word hate here is simply a word of contrast. Contrast for effect. It's the same word that Jesus used in Luke chapter 14 when he said, if anyone comes to me and does not hate father and mother, wife and children, brothers and sisters, yes, even their own life, such a person cannot be my disciple. Now we know that Jesus didn't mean that we're to hate our parents and our family because in other passages he said we're to love and honor our parents. 
What Jesus was getting at is that if you want to be his disciple, and this is no small thing, by the way, if you want to be his disciple, then he must be number one in your life, the center of your passions, greater than your family, even your own life. And so you have a decision, and please notice my words, you have a choice to make about who will be first in your life. You can choose to make yourself the center of your life. You can choose to make someone else, another person, the center of your life. Or you can choose to make Jesus the object of your highest affection. Jesus said, if you choose to put anyone ahead of me, you cannot be my disciple. Well, in a similar way, God made a choice between Jacob and Esau. Based on verse 11 and 12, we know that God chose Jacob even before Esau and Jacob were born. So we also know he didn't give Jacob preference because Jacob was a better person than Esau or because he loved him more. No, he's saying God simply chose Jacob. He simply exercised his sovereign right to choose Jacob over Esau. Because for reasons we don't understand, in the sovereign mind of God, Jacob was the one he wanted to accomplish his kingdom purposes through. And friends, we must remember that even though God may not treat us all alike, he loves us all the same and has our best interests at heart in all things. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world, not a chosen few. No, it says he loved the world, that he gave his one and only son that whoever, again, that's all inclusive, whoever believes in him, shall not perish, but have eternal life. Now, I want to make one other thing clear. Even though God chose to do something special through Isaac and through Jacob, it doesn't mean that Ishmael and Esau couldn't have represented God as well if they so desired. God will always work through those who are open to him and allow him to. It's just that sometimes God puts his finger on someone and says, I'm going to accomplish something very special in my kingdom through you, the way I did Isaac and Jacob. Which leaves us with a question. Does that bother you? Do you know someone, perhaps, that God has obviously blessed in so many ways or chosen to accomplish something significant through? And you're wondering, Lord, why him or why her and why not me? The fact is, if you're God's child, then he has assignments for you to accomplish as well every day if you're listening to him. They may not be as significant in the eyes of other people, 
but they are equally significant in the eyes of God. You may not impact thousands or even hundreds. You may impact only one other person or a small group of others. But if you do that faithfully as unto the Lord, you will please God as much as the person who impacts millions or thousands or hundreds. The deeper question is, are you content with that? Are you content like Jeremiah was, for example, to serve an audience of one? In other words, are you content to serve Jesus and Jesus alone? Irrespective of the impact you have. As best we can tell from the book of uh, Jeremiah, Jeremiah never impacted one person. But he was faithful to God to the end. And he was content with God too. Just to be faithful to God. Will you be content just to be faithful? Or will you be unsettled and driven the rest of your life to reach the top of whatever temporary, earthly, counterfeit God you are after in order to be admired and to receive the praises of the masses? Believe me, you will never know the joy of the Lord. You'll never know the peace, the satisfaction, the fulfillment of the Lord in your life. As long as you base your identity on how successful you are in the eyes of other people. See, God wants you to rest in Him. To be content to bloom where He's planted you. If He has more in mind for you, you can trust Him to let you know somehow. He will try to get through to you. And He will open the doors that have to open. You don't have to take matters into your own hands and, you know, I got to help you out a little bit, God. And try to bust down doors that God never intended you to open in the first place. Or at least doesn't want you to open right now. Friends, the key to peace and joy in your life is to rest in the sovereignty of God. To acknowledge that He is God and that we're not and that there's just so much about him we don't understand. It's letting go of your agenda and embracing only his agenda and purpose for your life. It's coming to the place where you no longer see the need to control people or events or circumstances, where you no longer are driven by a need to be better or bigger or more famous or more successful. In short, it's coming to the place where you no longer have the need to please anyone but God and God alone. It means doing what he calls you to do as faithfully as you can to the best of your ability, but leaving the outcomes totally to him, knowing that the God who was faithful then will be faithful now. I invite you to bow your heads, close your eyes for a moment. Just go to God with the two questions we've become accustomed to asking. Lord, what are you saying to me through this message? 
And Lord, what are you asking me to do about it? 